really built something. Now we're helping a lot of students. We wrote a grant to build a mobile wood shop. This is spinning this way. And to train a new generation of carpenters. Pure oak. So I was very curious about how people move through a kind of immersive installation. Creativity um, is the ability to self-manage and create your own life, and that's what democracy is all about. And so for me, arts education is fundamental to being able to instill democratic ideals in the next generation. My first sculpture class was in Rochester, New York when I was 10 years old. It was at that moment that I knew who I was and what I was going to do. Art is the, it's kind of an expression of your soul, of your experiences. And I had been taking uh, years of dance class before then from the age of four. So I really love dance and I really love sculpture. You know, I mean, what is sculpture but dance, you know, in a moment in time. When I came to Washington and GW, and it was really the revolution years. 68 to 72. I have always been a truth to power person. I have never been afraid to speak my mind and loudly. <laughs> Where I got my nickname in college, which is Megaphone Margie. You know, I did art, I did dance. I even did, I was very interested in Eastern religion. I figured I'm gonna spend my life in art so I want a well-rounded degree. And your art is only as good as your life experiences. When I opened my first studio in Georgetown after I graduated college, I was selling my work for more than my professor was selling his work. The general philosophy of sculptors in wood, and it's very African, is they say they let the spirit out of the wood. One of the reasons I like wood so much is it talks to you. It changes depending on how you carve it. It changes with the grain. You know, artists have been creating figurative sculpture forever. But the thing I did that was different than anybody else was that I made female bodies under glass that were cocktail tables. I was doing things that male woodworkers were not doing. They, they didn't carve human bodies under glass. Nobody trains to own a gallery, really. Well, we can start showing him the objects. 
So I was good in business. And, you know, my father taught me, you know, everything I know about business and promotion. I mean, I basically get 2,000 artists a year who send me their art to look at. I mean, you know, most of it I don't like. When I take on an artist, this artist has to knock my socks off and has to give me an orgasm, which I can show you what an orgasm is if you like. <laughs> I like the unusual. I like people who come up with a technique that nobody's ever thought of before. So we do a lot of three-dimensional mixed media. Um, but I also have really fine painters. They say I want my art well-crafted and my craft well-arted. I am not into sloppy. This is a very complicated piece. Well, Steven Hansen um, is one of the artists I've shown for 45 years. He's basically a self-taught artist. About 12 years ago, um, and this is my funny line about this, when the Supreme Court actually made decent decisions, they made a decision that parody is not copy. So he can take any painting that was ever painted, as long as he has his characters, it's fine. And the amazing part of these, he paints them. They're not photographs, they're not photostats. He actually paints these. Yeah. So this one's called A Bar at the Follies Bergere um, by Manet, and it's in the London Museum. And it's an amazing painting in and of itself. But the part you don't realize is that if you see the painting in person, it's a mirror. So some of this, like this part is the people behind it. So he's painting the reflection of it. And, uh, and it's, a, you know, this was a complicated piece to paint. And, um, and then, you know, the guy's so pleased with himself now that he's finished painting it, he's having some champagne, which is, of course, in the painting. Well, this is a Magritte, and um, it's called Clairvoyance. And the kind of theme of this is, you know, he's, the, the painter is painting the egg, and he's painting the chicken. And it's sort of like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And this guy's kind of looking at him like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> and so every detail he does, even the, the guy's hair, you know, I mean, he, he just really does an amazing job. You know, one of the things I say is I don't do anything particularly depressing. Um, I figure if you want to be depressed, read the news, watch the news, talk to your friends and family, but you're not going to find it here. I want people to feel uplifted. I have a glasses case. These could be useful. <laughs> Want me to cut them in half? No, Just yeah, kidding. Sure <laughs> One of my clients was the National Association of Home Builders, and they put out a statistic that said within five years, 50% of all carpenters are going to be retiring. It is the most endangered trade in this country and in Europe. We wrote a grant to build a mobile wood shop. This is spinning this way. And to train a new generation of carpenters. Wow, that's so good. What we often do is teach young kids how to turn things on a lathe, which they just adore doing. Oh, there it goes. I 
But I just felt that most schools don't have wood shops anymore. And these, they need a trade. I mean, I know the percentage of kids that went to college from my high school, 98%. There isn't one school in the city that would even come close to that. Tonight there's classes here in our stationary wood shop. It was just something that I really had wanted to do and felt there was a need for the city. We really built something. Now we're helping a lot of students. enough I think there's enough natural light that we don't need to fill okay. cool. so Garrett you should be standing like here turn the light down a little so the idea you get all the way down Garrett and up But not least, he vamps Liberty Hounds, drugstore cowboys falsely masquerading as semen. I started as a painter and sculptor when I was a kid. One thing led to another, and I found myself in art school. I was always a kind of closet scientist. That's what I wanted to be. You know, in the old days, people used to kind of paint landscapes, and the way I like to explain it is that today, you know, the landscape that we exist in is one of technologies and information and uh, new forms of image production. And artists have always used the vernacular, the everyday, to express themselves because this is the world in which we live. We really live in a in an augmented meta space of technology. And I like to work with that to express myself. My generation was a kind of TV generation. You know, we watched television more than we did anything except sleep, statistically. And I think this has just kind of continued through uh, the internet and to the cell phone today. You know, people spend more time on, on social media and on, on their smartphones than they do pretty much do anything else. And so it became very apparent to me when I was, uh, you know, a, a, a young artist that there was something missing from the uh, materials I was working with and that I needed to incorporate this kind of motion and energy and so forth. But which to choose from? Hmm. So the very first pieces I made when I was introduced to the video camera were um, handmade television shows, you know. The idea that you had to battle against this giant corporate structure that was presenting unified information fronts 
to the population, but if you had the tools of the technology in your hands, you could kind of manipulate that and bounce it back, mirror it back to the culture in a simple way. So I was very curious about how people move through a kind of immersive installation. Around 1991, small video projectors were introduced to the general public and um, I managed to get one of those and immediately started to play around with it and it immediately changed my uh, life and my work. I started to project faces onto figures and the video allowed me to um, animate them in such a way that they really seemed to come alive. And I thought of them as really entities which came out of media culture and into physical space. So around 1999, 2000 and there, I began to work with, um, with projection and public space. Nobody was really doing it at the time, so it was quite difficult to accomplish. The projections in public spaces allowed me to reach a different kind of audience. This is a great place to find somebody who's just walking down the street after work, you know, thinking about what they're going to do that evening and then they just look up and see this giant um, fist on the side of a building. Flat wandering, light sensitivity to the eye, visual purple. The interesting thing about projection for me is that it allows me to infuse uh, different surfaces with images. The classical way that we see is that light strikes a surface and all the light is absorbed except for one color and that comes back to the viewer's eye and that's how we see. But if you take a surface and project imagery onto it, you now have the reflected imagery of the actual object, but it's got an overlay of another moving image. And that, to me, allows people to dream in a, in a very special way. For an artist to really communicate, they have to try to understand what people think and how they think. And, and I'm very curious, I guess I'm just a curious person in general, but I'm interested in belief systems religions, uh, cults, um, superstition, psychology, uh, neuroscience. It's all fodder. So, all right, let's just go to the beginning again. So it starts up. I think what art does, for an artist to really communicate, they have to try to understand what people think, perspective, you know. And I think this is one of the reasons that people still go to museums and go there more and more and more, is because it's one of the few places left in popular culture 
where your perspective is really respected, you know. You're expected to go to work and do this. You're expected to shop in these certain places. You're expected to watch these certain things. And when it's the viewer and the work, that's where something else happens, you know, that that's not the work, that's not me, that's not the viewer alone, but it's something else that allows us to get to a different level. And that's what I really love about art. joyful and I feel like whatever orchestra I'm standing in front of whether it's my orchestra or another orchestra I want all of us to be able to rekindle that joy that we all first felt you know as young students starting out in the business My first time with the National Symphony here at the Kennedy Center. They've been incredibly generous and really wonderful to work with. Um, often when you do programs like this that involve a lot of technical back and forth, there are actors on stage, there are visuals being projected, so there's a lot of moving parts in addition to just the music making. And so just their patience, their diligence, their really willingness to throw themselves into this work and into the spirit of it, I've been so grateful for. She can just come on, they're tuning. Tuning, tuning, tuning. This is how it happened. Because this piece that we are presenting is based upon the book of the same name, Because, which was written by Mo Willems, a very famous children's book author, and illustrated by Amber Wren. The book itself is about um, the way that beauty gets passed on from one generation to the next um, because people are inspired. This is how it happened. inspired to create his own. And then as we progress, we see that because Schubert wrote this symphony and so many people wanted to hear it, how orchestra performances get Be put together. Because many others loved and practiced their instruments, there were enough musicians. 
So there's all these elements about how a concert works so that when children come to a concert, they're aware that there are ushers who are making sure that the seats are ready. There are people who are facilitating the lighting. Because someone's uncle caught a cold, someone's aunt had an extra ticket for someone special. Because the usher helped the aunt and her special guest, they found their seats. In this process, we see then a young girl who gets invited to this concert quite by accident, and she falls in love with the music that she sees on stage. And because she was at this concert, she then is inspired to become a composer and a conductor and share her gift of music with the world that will then inspire another child who's in the audience hearing her music. The music that has been composed for this that represents the new music of the young girl is written by a really wonderful composer, Jessie Montgomery. And she had um, wonderful assistance in the arrangement by Janina Norputh. So it's a really collaborative effort bringing this project to life. When I got the email from the Kennedy Center asking to participate in this project, and I was like in the quiet car on the train, and I was like, ah! kind of like screaming because I had I have a, a now six-year-old daughter and I had bought this book for her when she was four and I would read it to her and so I knew this book when they said it, and I I love it so much because this story was my story I was inspired by a concert to become a composer and conductor and so I really identified with this and so I was so honored and excited to be a part of this project. I started out as a pianist at the age of four. I studied piano at a very young age. Um, I've always loved music, and I was really lucky to have um, uh, some family friends of my parents take me to my first orchestra concert. I'll never forget, it was in Minnesota. That's where we were living at the time. I'll never forget, it was a beautiful Beethoven symphony. Um, I don't remember which one it was, but I just fell in love with the music. I fell in love with the spectacle and the power of seeing all of those musicians playing different instruments in different ways, um, making music together. I did not see a piano on the stage. And so, like in my seven-year-old brain, I kind of figured, okay, if I want to make that music, I have to do what I see the man on the stage doing, waving this stick around. And so that's how I, I just, I decided right then I wanted to be a conductor. I think that leadership is serving others. And so my job as the conductor um, is literally to, um, to allow the music to come through me and to share that with the musicians and to create a space that allows them for the music to also come through them. And because I love conducting so much, I enjoy teaching other young people how to conduct. And so at this point, I would like to ask if there are any mildly enthusiastic young people out there in the audience, too, who might want to come up and get a conducting lesson with the National Symphony Orchestra. Not just music, but the arts in general are really critical. I think for, for, for a lot of years, 
people probably felt that um, teaching the arts in public schools may have been a luxury. It's not a core skill like reading um, and, and writing and arithmetic and science. But I think one of the things that we see um, very, very recently is how important creativity is to critical thinking skills, to social emotional development, and also to give children a sense of agency, that they have the ability to identify their emotions and thoughts and express them constructively in a way that allows them to make their way through society and a variety of institutions. This is how we begin to very gently and softly teach children how democracy works. Creativity um, is the ability to self-manage and create your own life, and that's what democracy is all about. And so for me, arts education is fundamental to being able to instill democratic ideals in the next generation. Come on up. I have three batons, okay. I hope for the families coming to the Because event is that they leave feeling inspired to wave a pencil or a baton or something around and just feel the power of music in themselves and think about how they might be able to express that. You know, it isn't necessary for everyone to be a world-class violinist or you've been studying piano for 20 years. If you love music and you want to just sing or clap your hands and express yourself any way you want to, we don't own Beethoven, we don't own Schubert, we don't own Montgomery. This is something that belongs to all of us. That is how it happened!